You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. And while I am an attorney, the Buzz Off show is not legal advice. Instead, it is a weekly look at all of the buzz surrounding drones, autonomous vehicles, the Internet of Things, and all of the technology in between. And catch us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 in the afternoon Eastern on America's webradio.com as well as the Lawyer Liz podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. And we're going to take a break this week from our typical format and style to have a special Hurricane Harvey and technology and search and rescue emergency response uh, episode and sincere apologies to our entertainment and political correspondent Rob Graham because Rob while he had had lovely segments to share with us today and reports from the field unfortunately he would not stand in the middle of a hurricane and something about workers comp so rob we will have to air your other segments later instead we're going to kick things off with a conversation with a business operations and policy expert, Marie Vachon, who can lay a little bit the foundation and the, the background on what we're dealing with and then delve a little bit deeper into emergency and uh, first response logistics from a, uh, from a technology-specific expertise, including drones, with uh, David Kavar, who is the Advocacy Director for the National Association of Search and Rescue. So with all of that, let's kick it off with Marie. And so, Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. What would you like to ask me first? (laughs) Everything. I mean, you're, we're looking at as, as we are preparing the show, we are a couple days into Hurricane Harvey that is striking Houston and uh, the Gulf Coast of Texas, but it's poised to go next towards Louisiana. And it just happens to be the 12th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. So, you know, as someone who was boots on the ground helping with the logistics and the partnerships and the responses to that, uh, what's changed? What's What song has stayed the same? Well, when it comes down to it, you boil it down, it's all about people. That's never going to change. But when it comes to technology, we're leaps and bounds from all the social media that didn't exist for Katrina that exists now. And you can see stories where people were connected every day via Twitter. And one in particular, where their mother and her small child got separated 
um, during the evacuation, and the mother tweeted out, and the police tweeted out, and they were able to uh, put the mother and the child back together very quickly. That, having Twitter and Facebook would have been wonderful during Katrina um, from the technology aspect. Well, and one thing, one of the stories that certainly uh, brought a smile to my face, and you've highlighted perfectly, was a doc, uh, Otis got uh, the now iconic picture of Otis marching down the street with a bag of dog food in his uh, little snout. But Otis was reunited with his family because somebody saw the picture on social media. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to watch. But you hear the stories then of some of the first responders uh, saying, especially when it comes to the 911, that if you can't get through one, don't flood, don't immediately call back. Give it a second, then call back, but stop tweeting us your location address because we're not necessarily monitoring Twitter for that. Uh, What do you say to those kinds of uh, responses? It's communication, but the right kind of communication? Well, I have mixed emotions about that one. A, I'm not on the ground, so I don't know the exact uh, situations they're talking about. So that might help me to make a, to give you a better answer. But um, I think it's a hard call because the 911 system can easily get overwhelmed um, because they didn't. I don't think they thought it was going to be that bad. And people, I saw somebody um, saying. Don't judge us. You know, we were told just to stay here. We didn't think it was going to get this bad. And this is where social media, I think, can help. And because you have other groups coming in and rescuing, like that Cajun Navy, they're not going to be on the 911 system. They're going to be monitoring social media and having people contact them. And so I think that's where there's that connection of where the private sector and private individuals and organizations can really come into play and really help. And I think it would also help, I guess, if they were also telling people only use 911 for really dire emergencies. So, you know. So streamlining and prioritizing the communication systems because, too, you're dealing with situations where the critical infrastructure, the communication networks aren't – in some cases, there's no power, there's no, you know, cell towers are knocked out or overloaded, uh, landlines may not, you know, may no longer uh, be standing, washed out, etc. There's been quite a shift from, you know, I'd probably say 12 years ago, more people probably had landlines, but certainly the shift towards mobile networks but in the internet of things where we're relying on this connectivity how do you respond to getting some of those networks back up and running well i think first of all you have to plan ahead and know that things will be down and communicate with other people you might be working with be it your family who are on separate locations or a business that has multiple locations of what you will do in the event that you cannot contact each other. But you have to also realize and put faith in the private sector 
telecommunications companies and the power companies that they want to get everybody back up online as fast as possible. And I know from Katrina, Bell South, the uh, one of the gentlemen with government relations called me and said, what do y'all need? And that was great because it, it then we didn't have to worry about any ethics because we couldn't tell them what we needed. But once he said, what do you need? That ripped off the uh, Band-Aid and we could say, I could say, let me put you in touch with our IT people and they will tell you what our needs are. Um, if you go to, I'll just say to the larger companies, AT&T and Verizon, and if you Google, they have plans and they will lay out in a PDF or somewhere online of all the things they want to do and all their capabilities. And I think that that includes bringing in mobile cell phone towers that they can pop up and um, running cable if, if you know, the lines are down. And um, I know Bell South had people out in the field working on those types of things. Do I know specifically? No. And, and you, you're and you, not, you're not the lineman, uh, working all that with them. Uh, no, and I have an issue with height, so you're not going to see me climbing up on a pole. But, you know, it's one of those, th- but this is the great thing about the private sector is they're nimble and they can respond, but you can't nail down ahead of time what they're going to do because each response is different. Well, in each situation, I, I have been impressed. I mean, I started seeing these pictures of, these command centers and highly LinkedIn connected, you know, uh, the best of the best in equipment and everything. And then it was, you scroll to the bottom of the picture and it says, or the story, and they said, well, this is the Home Depot, the Lowe's, the, you know, insert uh, Walmart, you know, international or national chain that they seem to have a lot of almost a say not better but uh, they took it seriously no they do and they're they are on the ball they have wonderful operation centers i haven't seen them but um you mentioned walmart i have a good friend from arkansas who happens to live in northwest arkansas so he's connected in with the company and it's great because um, not Harvey, but um, also with Texas, when the space shuttle went down in Texas, uh, this friend of mine from Arkansas called me up and said, I have the head of government relations for Walmart, and they want to donate, they want to do this, but they've got some coordination issues, and they want to work with FEMA. And I said, well, let me get the head of FEMA connected with this gentleman, and then I stepped out of the way. So I can't tell you what happened, but I do know that they coordinated. And after during or after Katrina, there was a big question when the Walmarts would open up in southern Mississippi because they're all super centers, and this is where most of the people would go grocery shopping. And if there aren't any grocery stores open, then the law enforcement and the emergency responders need to provide the meals ready to eat. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather go to a grocery store than eat an MRE. And I was able to reach out to this same contact and say, I cannot actually get through to the emergency operations center at Walmart because they're so busy. Can you call them directly since you have that relationship and find out for me when the, uh, you know, Walmart superstores are going to open in those counties that were the hardest hit? And he was able to get the information to me within 
I think thirty minutes or several hours. I can't. I can't recall the specific. Needless to say, a, a short time frame compared to typical, let's say, government operations. Right. But let me also throw in here: when you talk about command centers, the government command centers are great because they can also be flexible depending on what kind of event takes place. And most of them at the state level. As I can't speak to all of them, and I won't be specific of which state I'm talking about, but I know they bring private sector representatives into the command center where they're sitting at the desks right with everybody else, especially when it comes to uh, the power companies and the telecommunications companies. And I can say, and uh, I've sat in, in operation centers, and one of the people sitting around me was a representative with the Red Cross. Well, in that integration uh, and communication, as, as you've highlighted, seems to certainly be a key. And so we'll have to pick that up right after our first commercial break. But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Forty-five years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors. And should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. This is Dr. George from Peach Street ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peach Street ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peace Tree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. This is the special uh, Hurricane Harvey edition of the show, talking now with Marie Vachon. And before the break, we were talking about the fabulous command centers that have all the wonderful gadgets and toys. And how do you connect those, uh, the private and public sector communications? So Marie, uh, really, how do you delve into that a little bit more? I mean, how do we connect I have a great idea or I have a company that is ready, willing, and able, yet how do we best utilize our resources? Well, I will tell you this is from being in the government with the Department of Homeland Security in the private sector office as a business liaison, 
we built relationships with companies, organizations, non-governmental organizations, otherwise known as NGOs, such as the Red Cross. We built those over time so that when there was an event and we were in a command center, people would call us to give us updates or we could easily reach out to them and not have to spend time or you could say waste time introducing yourself. You could just call them and say, hey, this is Marie. I need an update. How are y'all doing? Do you, you know, what's going on? And that worked out really well. In addition, and this has nothing to do with technology, but just at the very, you know, boiling it down to the communication and relationships and the trust is in command centers. I always thought it was important when the private sector outreach person was sitting next to whoever was state and local reaching out to say a a governor's office or a mayor's office or such and um, someone with FEMA at the very least that the three of us were sitting together because then when we're talking to the different stakeholders we know because we're sitting next to each other we have all the same information and we're giving the same messaging and that reduces frustration and you know you you, you've seen rumor mongering when things go on that Something might be happening over on the east side of town, or maybe it's happening on the west side of town, and you find out later nothing's happening. But if you all have the same messaging, you can get, you know, get the word out of exactly what's going on, whether it's on the east or the west or whatever the situation is. So when it comes to coordinating the communications, when the infrastructure, when the network is down, would y'all have established communication channels or protocols set up ahead of time that, you know, is it, it there's no bat phone, but what would be the bat phone? Well, I'm trying to think back. We were lucky in that we had, we always had communications. I think, um, back on going back further at 9-11 and before I was in emergency management at all, I worked for, uh, the Department of the Interior working for the secretary and just kind of got thrown into the deep end that day. And there was, there were discussions with other offices I know on the phone, but those of us were there, we were able to coordinate and then we knew we weren't going to be able to talk to each other. And then we were able to come back and meet together, um, you know, several hours later and continue getting everything done. Um, the same thing is the same thing uh, happened with Katrina from all the people I knew in New Orleans and down on the coast of Mississippi. Uh, I was in Baton Rouge and then Jackson. So I had telecommunications. I had Internet and such. But talking to the people down in the field was a little bit more iffy. And I know in New Orleans, somebody said they were standing there holding their phones up looking for a signal. And um, I think there were uh, satellite phones as well. And in addition to that, to tell you about how technology has changed, back in the day for some event where I knew I would have to be mobile, you know, be able to go from here or there, and I needed all these Excel spreadsheets with contact names and numbers and such, I went out and bought a USB drive, and I think it was just 256 uh, 
millibyte, whatever, MB. I, you know, I'm not a technology <laughs> person, so yes. somebody's going to be laughing, whatever the MB stands for. And it was like $90. You, I mean, <laughs> that tells you this was probably 2003, 2004, somewhere in the, in the beginning of, home, of the Department of Homeland Security. Now, now we have the cloud. That's something we hadn't touched on. You can upload everything to the cloud, and it doesn't, ma- no, it doesn't matter where you are. You can get things done, and you don't have to worry about, you know, hauling tons of files out of the building if you think, what do I need if I never, if I can never come here again because, you know, the server's not in the building. You don't have to worry about hauling files out, which is what I did on 9-11. I sat there and thought, what do I need if I never come back? And... Pulled out the, you know, clear plastic trash can liner that was clean at the bottom and started throwing files in it and walking down the hall like Santa Claus with a big pack on my back. Because I (laughs) just didn't know. Exactly. It seems like some of the, with the Internet of Things and everything being connected, you've taken out some of the uncertainty, but... at the same time, you don't have the, you didn't have Twitter, you didn't have Facebook. There was no way to send one message to let all of your relatives know that you were okay or that send help here. It, you had to hope that if you were, if you could get a signal that somebody was on the other, available on the other end to pick it up. Uh, it, oh. Now, and we didn't even have texting when you knew you might just get a blip of service. On 9-11, my cell phone would go blip, and I would see five voicemail, and then it would blip again a few minutes later, and I'd see eight voicemail. In that moment, if we'd had texting, I know I could have texted out and communicated with other people, but we didn't have that. Um, and I think you have a thought, and I'm going to interrupt you, but when you were talking about the Internet of Things, what I love about all those connected technologies is that you don't even have to be there to get a read on what's going on because so many things will tell you if somebody's breaking in your house, if you have carbon monoxide uh, poisoning issue going on in your home and whatever you've bought to monitor it can send you a text message and you don't even have to be there. And those things didn't exist before and I think that's fabulous. Well, and one thing that is going to be interesting to see as the development uh, kind of, I hate to say, for our next disaster, but it's bound to happen. But one of the issues now is when we're reliant on, you you get the messages, charge your phone uh, before the disaster, charge your laptop charge your devices uh, but when the messages charge your car because it's an electric vehicle what happens when the charging stations aren't good it's, it's one thing if you have you, know, you can get further on a tank of gas than you can on a charged you know, battery what happens when we are relying on that uh, that backup system uh, and how, how does that change when it's not just personal vehicles, but also from logistics, from the transportation, the shipping? Uh, well, I was going to say with electric vehicles and not being able to charge, you have to go to plan B. The same as 
being in the southeast after one of these storms, you have to gas up before you go because there might not be any gas in the gas stations. We've seen that. The refineries are offline right now, so we may get into a situation where you have to plan ahead because there's not as much gas available for a short time. Yeah, and it it just begs the question. It's uh, you know there is value. Maybe you become a two car home where you keep the gas uh, vehicle in addition to the electric vehicle, or uh, perhaps that's a reminder that the technology still needs to evolve a little bit further. But talking about the carbon monoxide poisoning, what happens when you're using your car in the garage to charge, you know, the car battery to charge your electronic devices? The warnings are out that uh, make sure your garage is properly ventilated. Uh, because well, that you can manla- manually open up the door <laughs> if yeah, needed. I mean, it, absolutely. It's, I'm picturing, uh, you know, the hotel that I stayed in during the hacker summer camp in Vegas last month, it, everything was connected to an iPad that if the iPad no longer has power or Wi-Fi connection, I wouldn't have been able to do certain things around the hotel. Room. Well, you mentioned to me. At that time, while you were at the hotel, it was the best thing, but the worst thing. Now you never explained. Yes. You never explained why. I didn't ask because there was too much going on. But I could see that if the connectivity was down, then there are things that you can't do. And taking this a step further, which some people would say, my sister-in-law would tell me I'm paranoid to mention these things. But you have to plan ahead for things. They've talked about if there's, you know one of those electronic pulse things or whatever, and your all your electronics are zapped, then you really have to have things on paper and, you know, go back to the dark yeah. ages where you didn't have the, a lot of technology. The backup system of, well, you need to have pen and paper. And uh, as you noted, when you don't have access to the electronic files, the paper file, you know, I, do you have the supporting mechanisms? And from a logistics standpoint, how coordinating between, you know, now where, it, as you noted, we have the ability to post on the messaging, the blip of connectivity. Right. But where do you see kind of the evolution from here? What do you think is going to be bigger going forward? You know, I don't really know, um, but thinking about, going forward but going backward i think i heard somewhere out uh i think it was out while we were in vegas um at defcon that some people are looking back at analog and oh yes you know as a backup to everything digital and so that it might be the going forward and going back but that could be the answer because you also need interoperability with other you know, you need to be able to still connect with different devices. Well, absolutely. And how, and that's one of the other communication systems things. How do we make sh- ensure that all of our networks are going to play well with each other? That, uh, it, having that and, you know, when naval vessels are going back to other, uh, navigational systems than just GPS. Uh, how does that translate to if you're telling the 
Cajun Navy, which a uh, tip of my hat to the folks in Louisiana who just jumped in, brought their fishing boats, but in coordination between them to make sure that, hey, does everybody have the same way to communicate the logistics? But uh, Marie, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights and especially your perspective, having been there, done that, and you have... Unfortunately, too many T-shirts to count from these, but uh, look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope I gave you some great answers and answered <laughs> any questions or had a great conversation. This was, was a lot of fun. Excellent. Thank you. We will be right back on Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz after this commercial break when we'll open the conversation with David Kavar. But thanks. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. I'm your host, Catch us each Wednesday on America's Web Radio or iTunes, Lawyer Liz. So we were speaking before the break with Marie and really getting a broad sense of how technology is changing the you know, our emergency response when it comes to such large-scale uh, disasters as we're seeing unfold with Hurricane Harvey, but particularly in the context of it being the 12th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Well, as promised, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into one of the new technologies, but really how how do you work with the search and rescue and other first responders and how do you integrate successfully the the interest and the need to help and hey i've got this cool drone sitting you know collecting dust and how can i utilize it but at the same time not become part of the disaster response myself so as I said, as promised, we have David Kavar joining us, who is the Advocacy Director for the National Association of Search and Rescue. And so, David, I'd say this is right up your alley. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here and uh, very pleased to have an opportunity to speak with you and with your audience. Well, and particularly, I mean, you're no stranger to technology. I mean, you get you get your hands dirty on stuff i mean how are we seeing things change both at, in from the search and rescue i mean drones uh, can provide aerial footage that are quicker easier perhaps than a helicopter but if only it were so easy right yeah, exactly um and search and rescue has been a professional volunteer professional and paid professional uh practice for decades now, and we have seen all sorts of technologies come, very few of them go, um, and they're all still in some form or another part of our toolkits, and uh, drones or UAVs, uh, as different people call them, are certainly 
the latest uh, technology that has been introduced as part of our toolkits, and we're still, in some ways, figuring out how best to incorporate it. Um, and we're working also with vendors and with people that need the services uh, to also address all of those issues. So they, they hold a great deal of promise, and like many other things, they likely are not going to replace existing tools. They're going to complement those tools, and the people that are operating them uh, will, to be successful, need to have some understanding of the environment that they're working in uh, to properly apply those technologies. Because technology on its own um, is just a a device, Uh, and it's really a matter of how that device is applied and the people who are applying that device and how they understand their mission and the large organizations that they work within. Well, and one of the things that always strikes me when it comes to, particularly in search and rescue, is you don't get to pick and choose the, it's not uh, sunny blue skies, open field, and the best cellular or what other communication network. I mean, it's dirty. It's messy. I mean, we're seeing with uh, Hurricane Harvey, the rain hasn't stopped. And so how do you prepare for that? Because even with the best tools, they're only as good as the folks using them. Exactly. I mean, search and rescue, certain traditional search and rescue is challenging enough. And then when you're conducting search and rescue in a disaster environment, um, all the normal challenges you're facing are compounded, and you underscored some of them already. And then there are additional ones that the infrastructure, cellular, housing, food and water, logistics, transportation, all of the infrastructure is severely challenged. And if you appear on scene with a desire to help and the capability to help, but you are not self-sufficient for everything that you need to operate, then not only are you placing a burden on an already overtaxed system, but you are taking away resources from those in need of it most, i.e. those people affected. So there, you really need fundamentally to be prepared to be self-sufficient, to be a contributor to the response, and not in some form or another detracting from the response. Well, and so from the volunteer, and I, I'm going to lump them in with the prof- the paid uh, professionals, but all of the, the professionals who have trained us, what sort of training courses or what considerations, what practice do y'all have ahead of time? So uh, almost all search and rescue, and particularly, I believe at this point, all disaster response, all fire services, uh, all emergency management um, is using uh, NIMS and ICS. And ICS is an incident command system. And it it comes out of a couple of different sources, including military, uh, including fire services. But fundamentally, it's a very formal structure for how organizations respond to incidents of all types Um, how they scale up from a single person to multiple organizations with hundreds of people, thousands of people, um, how roles are assigned, 
what those roles uh, are responsible for. So it's a, it's a very formal system, but it's also a very flexible system. And coming up to speed on how that system works is really a matter of taking uh, essentially four courses, and they're all taught online, uh, ICS 100, ICS 200, ICS 700, and ICS 800. And those, in some form or another, are an introduction to ICS and NIMS, and that's really the starting point, so understanding what the system's all about. And then there are two other things that are really important if you want to be successful um, and contribute to a response organization, uh, to a response such as this. The first one is be very well prepared. So understand everything you need to accomplish your mission, practice it, practice it in the environments that you're going to be operating in. Um, and then the other part of it is build relationships with the organizations who are likely to be responding in advance. Um, as much as you might be of value to them uh, and as much as they might really want to work with you, the time for them to vet you, the time for them to incorporate you is not in the middle of a disaster. Um, at that point in time, they're focused on response and focused on taking care of the affected population. The time to build that relationship with them is well in advance. Um, and then everybody's got the time to sit down and go over your credentials, to go over responsibilities, to go through tabletop exercises, to go through field exercises. So you build this, the trust relationship required to properly integrate with these organizations. Well, it's, it's to create that muscle memory so that, it, you know, you always think of, well, it, you don't want to have to think about it. You would just want to know this is how something, you know, oh, if it's X, then I know to respond Y. Uh, but how do you avoid the, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, the, hey, hold my beer, watch <laughs> this, I'm going to be a first responder or I'm going to help with the search and rescue. I mean, it, how do you avoid the folks who end up on YouTube themselves in worse situation or in worse uh, condition than perhaps the people they were going to rescue? If we had a really good answer to how to avoid that, we would be doing it. Um, a lot of it comes down to education, um, and we spend a lot of time uh, working on educating people, on working on trying to get them to join their local search and rescue or fire service or whatever other emergency management organization is so that they can get experienced responding locally, and, and that is very beneficial. And the thing is, Disasters like this come, well, hopefully come along very rarely. And so preparing to respond to a disaster such as this doesn't make a lot of sense when there are very much smaller disasters going on in your community all time, all the time. So by working with your local community emergency management organizations, fire service, law enforcement, search and rescue, et cetera, um, you not only develop the muscle memory, as you said, you not only develop the experience and the trust relationships, but you are benefiting the community in small and large ways on a much more frequent basis than if you are preparing only to respond to a disaster. Well, two, how do you, I mean, you if you're not part of the system, how do you become, you know, the communication links aren't there. I mean, if, if cell phones everything are down everyone's using radios or something it, you can't just jump into that communication network uh, 
have y'all seen problems that were, you know, if you want, you've got a police band ready. I mean, I used to have an app on my phone that would take some of the more commercial uh, channels, not the secured ones, but, you know, and play some of that I'd listen in. How do y'all do that where you can both incorporate your volunteers, but perhaps use the technology to your advantage? So and that, and that you touched on a huge problem in any sort of disaster is that the traditional communication links are often affected either because cell towers are taken out by the disaster or because everything is swamped by uh, the affected community using the bandwidth available to take care of their own needs. Um, and so that's part of the reason for coordinating uh, with a formal organization that's responding is that if there is uh, particular types of technology that are required for communication, like dedicated radio systems and things like that, they can provide it. But the other thing is that there are a lot of low bandwidth solutions. So Twitter is a very good example. Uh, there are a lot of apps out there. Red Cross has got some. Uh, NAPSIG, which is the National Alliance for Public Safety GIS Foundation, has got a crowdsourcing uh, capability where people can upload uh, photographs and contribute to the emergency management. So there are a lot of these applications out there that are very useful, but if you don't figure out which ones are going to be used in a disaster ahead of time and practice with them, uh, then you're not going to be very well prepared when you actually show up. So that's another example of, you know, think ahead, uh, figure out what technologies are useful, uh, practice for those technologies, figure out what organizations you're going to be working with and talk to them about what organ- what applications and technologies that they're using so you can be better prepared. Because the person who shows up on scene self-sufficient with batteries, food, shelter, all the rest of it, but also understands how your organization works and is prepared to communicate with your organization, that's the person who is most likely to be able to be put out in the field without a lot of risk and concern. So it's the preparation, the planning, and the practice, and really the three Ps, I guess. Uh, But one of the three things Marie touched on it is, again, that, that interlink between the public and the private sector of how do you harness some of those resources and certainly something we will pick up right after this commercial break as well as delve a little bit deeper into we, we keep seeing the the FAA warnings now saying please don't fly your drone you're interfering you're hampering and hindering and yet on occasion they work so perhaps how some of those new technologies at loop in, but you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy, no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. 
We use the state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio and our special edition of the Hurricane Harvey Technology Edition. And we've been speaking this last half of the show with uh, David Kavar with the National Association of Search and Rescue on some of the challenges and also the blessings that the connected technology gives everyone an opportunity to help where they can uh, or helps disseminate some of the information so that they know not to help and leave it to the professionals. But, David, uh, what do you do when you have, a, I mean, Marie and I were talking a little bit about you have Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, Bass Pro Shops. You have sending their armada of uh, fishing boats. So you were highlighting before the break the the need and the balance uh, for taking, you know, letting the professionals do what they do, but how do you help harness some of that enthusiasm? Um, and the first thing that we try to acknowledge is that the enthusiasm is welcome and we don't want to turn away individuals or corporations who are really striving to help the community. Um, all that does is uh, really put a damper on their efforts and it makes them oftentimes try to find other ways to contribute outside of the formal channels. And that's what it comes down to. There are formal channels for individuals or corporations to help. And any emergency management organization, when they stand up the emergency operations center for their county or their state, um, they have a variety of different roles. And one of those roles is a volunteer coordinator. And usually that role is split up over several people, and then it's split into two different halves. One is for 
handling the individual civilian volunteer who wants to come out and remove debris or help feed or whatever. And then there's another one who's responsible for handling the Home Depot and the Bass Pro shops and things like that. The trick is you've got to match people's desire to help with needs. If, if somebody ships over, and we've seen this happen uh, when I was in Illinois, if somebody starts sending food or sending, you know, 50 boats, and they these trucks show up at your emergency operations center and you don't have a need for them or any place to put them, it detracts from the overall effort. And so coordination and communication are crucial. Well, I can't help but think of the movie Clueless, where they're doing a, a drive, you know, a donation drive for, and I forget what, uh, you know, earthquake, uh, tsunami, whatever, and some of the uh, Cher and her friends are donating their skis. Uh, and uh, thinking, really? What? So it was a humorous take on the, you know, how do you get out the message, or in this case, as you said, you know, the Cajun Navy shows up where you have these wonderful volunteers from Louisiana in Bass Pro Shops coming in with these boats. How do you let them know where to go or how to how? I mean, some of it is going to be an organic thing, but how do you integrate that or communicate, hey, show up here, we'll, we'll send you in the right direction. One of the joys of working with organizations such as Home Depot or even the Cajun Navy is that oftentimes they have not just a leader or several leaders, but they have somebody who's responsible for interacting with other agencies. And that's the person we want to put our hands on. We want to bring that person into the emergency operations center, and they are our liaison for coordinating their efforts. And so they will generally stage outside the affected area, will coordinate, uh, the, the rest of the team will will coordinate with the liaison, will say, here's the mission, here are the tasks we need to accomplish. And then we will find out what resources they have, and we will match the tasks or assignments with the resources available. And through that coordination, their resources will be assigned to the tasks that are best suited to their capabilities. And that applies to Cajun Navy, that applies to Home Depot, that applies to pretty much any other organization that understands that there's a structure here, and the structure, if they cooperate with that structure, will help them to be as effective as possible in serving the community. Neil, do you have, do you set up, you know, Slack channels or Facebook uh, friends groups or, you know, message boards? I mean, it, when you're, and we highlight this a little bit, when your communication system is a little sketchy to begin with, uh, what are some of the challenges there when you've got, uh, you know, volunteers who are not trained, who are just showing up? I mean, I'm not only in the boats, but uh, how do you get that information out other than, you know, through the li- liaison, but how do they communicate it? Are they calling in? Do y'all set up websites that if you can access this, uh, how, how is that communication structure set? Yeah, all of those things come into play. And the, that role is the press information officer or PIO role. Um, and it's another part of in, the incident command system that we were talking about earlier. 
Um, and so the PIO, it's part, it's a part of a, it's a, generally a team of people that are responsible for understanding what the messages are that the command staff want to communicate and then putting together the tools to get that message out to the various parts of the community. And so the answer is that they will use Slack, they will use Facebook, they will set up phone banks for people to call in, uh, they will potentially uh, write up the, ply- the flyers that are being distributed in neighborhoods. Uh, they will coordinate with news agencies. They'll com- it, they will try to identify all the possible communication channels for getting the message out and then identify the appropriate message and also the form that it's necessary to put it, the message into for that particular communication channel. So it's, it's a very hard job. Um, it's a 24 by 7 job. It's thankless because everybody's calling you all the time and you're never giving them enough um, information. And it's also incredibly rewarding because you are the PIO and that team is incredibly important in communicating the message that helps people understand that there are people, that there's an organization, a structure that exists to help the people that have been affected or to help families understand that their loved ones are being searched for, are being rescued, and provide comfort. But that, that's the formal EOC structure, but then you look at organizations such as American Red Cross. They have formal channels that, for doing this as well. But the American Red Cross is also a very good example of setting these communication channels up in advance and training people on using them. And one of the messages ARC puts out and other organizations put out is that prior to a disaster, figure out who outside of the area that's going to be affected everybody should call into. So when I was living in California, we figured out, okay, if there's an earthquake hits and we can't find each other, we're all going to call back to somebody in Maryland and communicate through them. So So did y'all have a hashtag that you had agreed (laughs) upon using ahead of time, like hashtag hurricane RV helpers, or you, have, you, have, you, you set up your own. This is this is the, there's a old saying that goes "sempre gumby," uh, which is Latin for always flexible, based on the old gumby doll. Um, it, it's just <laughs> you set a you, your disaster response plan, which you've written and exercised and talked about. You set all this stuff up, and you're ready to implement it as soon as the disaster hits. But just like war. Nothing survives contact with the enemy, and nothing survives contact with disaster. So you execute based on your own hashtags, but you also spend a lot of time, if you're being PIO, for example, you spend a lot of time on Facebook, on Slack, on Twitter, and things like that, seeing where the affected population and where potential responders are communicating, and then going to them. You don't expect that people are going to come to you and cooperate with your structure, You've got to understand that this is very fluid, that people are going to do what they want to do, and you've got to reach out to them in the environments where they already are and in a way that will not come off as officious or demeaning or anything like that. If somebody wants to help, you can't just say, no, you can't help because the FAA has a TFR. I mean... I was going to say, it's as if you knew what scenario you were kind of setting up in my mind. I mean, you have these drone operators who think, I'm going to help find find somebody with my drone. 
And yet the FAA is saying, please don't stop. Uh, it, you're interfering with uh, helicopters and like, how do you reach that audience of volunteers? A lot of it comes down to education in advance. Um, the, it, trying to communicate with people in the heat of the moment is incredibly difficult because everybody's passions are up. Um, the passion for people to help is up. The passion of people that are affected by the disaster that are reaching out to anybody and everybody they can is up. And the emergency management people are all passionate about serving their community the best way they know. So the best answer is in advance, but during the event, it, the best thing to do is identify, the best thing to do, in my opinion, is identify sort of leaders in the various communities, whether it's a Facebook group or somebody who's very active on a particular hashtag on Twitter or whatever, and possibly pick up the phone and just call them and say, hey, look, we understand your community's desire to help. Right now, your current course of action may be having a negative effect on the response. Here's some suggestions for how you and your community might help, and then work through those thought leaders or the leaders of that community, whether they're formal or informal, to work with the rest of the community. And then, and we certainly saw something like that with Hurricane Matthew, and on the East Coast, saw the uh, FPV drone racers had coordinated; they had taken the time. through the Drone Racing League to reach out to first responders ahead of time and say, we're going to have these pilots ready to go, but we'll wait till you tell us. Uh, So once you get those channels of communication, what are some of the other things that y'all focus on? We focus on informing them and bringing them up to speed in advance uh, providing them with the appropriate training, communication, checklists, and a variety of other things that un- help them be better prepared. And then also one of the things that I try to do and then other emergency managers try to do as well is that we try to link them up with their local uh, response agencies in the community. Going back to what we were talking about before the break is that there are small disasters happening in your local community all the time. And if you prepare for helping with those, then you are going to be far better prepared when it comes time for helping with the major disasters. So how do I find the association or your contact information to learn more or get involved? So there are three organizations I'll point you to. The organization I'm with, NASAR, is the National Association Search and Rescue, and that's www.nasar.org. And unfortunately, our director right now uh, lives in Houston, and he's been evacuated. So uh, you can reach out to me directly, uh, dcovar at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to help uh, and while he's getting reorganized. Another one is napsig.org, uh, N-A-P-S-G.org. Uh, they are a GIS organization that uh, is providing some phenomenal imagery uh, that is crowdsourced, so people are contributing uh, to it. And it's supporting emergency management. And then the final website I'll point people to is the FEMA National Incident Management System, NIMS, and that's www.fema.gov, and then national-incident-management-system. And that's the starting point for understanding how uh, emergency management works during a disaster. 
Well, thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you as well to Marie. And thank you to America's Web Radio. Catch us next time. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.